Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Yeah, it's hard to break down 565 uh, pages, but there are three main takeaways or categories for me. And the first one is uh, the IG report really tells us that the problems at the FBI and the Department of Justice were uh, more pervasive and problematic than any of us uh, realized. The second thing is it sadly confirms that even though Hillary Clinton should have been uh, charged with mishandling classified information, she was never really in danger of seeing that happen. And finally, uh, the Inspector General report really provides a factual basis to call into question the legitimacy of all of the actions taken, all of the decisions made, and all of the evidence gathered in the first nine months of the Trump-Russia investigation based on who was in charge of that investigation. That was Representative John Ratcliffe talking about some important takeaways from the Department of Justice Inspector General's report. And we have so much more to get into with that. Uh, we also want to get into our, uh, we've got some more to, to do with the immigration issue. Um, so welcome back to the show, Stacey Washington. Here on Hour 2, we are going to be talking to Mark Lauder, former press secretary, to Mike Pence about the immigration battle. I'm going to be asking him some questions. And so we're going to listen to this uh, remainder of the most important takeaways from the IG report. Then we're going to circle back around to this piece by Karen McQuillan. It's called Outside the Defensible Perimeter. And this is going to knock your socks off. If you, you know, obviously you live in the United States, although I have to say hi to people who are listening from abroad. We have people who listen from the UK and, and other parts, Spain and things like that. It's always so good. Um, so we'll listen to this. Actually, what we'll do is we'll listen to this short clip from uh, Representative John Ratcliffe. Then we'll go to the phone. And then we'll talk about Outside the Defensible Perimeter by Karen McQuillan. You, I, you're not going to believe this. I read this. My eyeballs were popped out the entire read. Um, so let's listen to number seven. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's not limited uh, to Peter Strzok, although I will say uh, I don't know that the FBI could have chosen anyone worse uh, to lead the Trump-Russia investigation. Had they, had they picked Hillary Clinton to lead that investigation, I don't know that the level of animus or bias or prejudice against Donald Trump would have been any higher. But the IG report tells us that it's Peter Strzok and it's Lisa Page, but it's also teams of agents and lawyers that are identified in this uh, IG report five of whom who have been referred to the Office of Professional Responsibility for their anti-Trump texts. And so really throughout the 565 pages of this report, Maria, on every page you find some evidence of political bias against uh, Donald Trump. And that really calls into question uh, the work that was done here with respect to the two highest profile uh, investigations in recent times, both the Hillary Clinton email investigation and the Trump-Russia investigation that became the special counsel matter. Whoa. Okay. Whoa. So he, it, this, is, so this isn't a bunch of people that I, I listened to tons of audio and I just found people who would say the same thing. This is re being repeated on show after show after show. People who are not, like Trey Gowdy is hardly what you would call a huge proponent of President Trump. He's saying this presents a problem for Mueller. Now, Representative John uh, Ratcliffe, it presents a problem for Mueller and on and on and on. So let's go to the phones and then we'll get to this piece. Um, it's Pete in Los Angeles. Welcome to Stacy on the Right. I'm not hearing anything. I'm not sure if he's. Do Hello. We have... Hi. Welcome to the show. Hey, I heard Los Angeles. I'm actually calling from Louisiana. 
Oh, Louisiana. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks for calling the show. It probably got put in there as L.A. That's what threw me off, and I didn't answer immediately. <laughs> okay. So what's your comment? Stacy? listen, I am actually uh, actually had a, a question, uh, actually some advice, um, and I want to shift gears. I know you're kind of on a different topic, but the Planned Parenthood stuff is really uh, a you know, passionate subject with me. I'm down here in Louisiana. We have a, a uh, Planned Parenthood, which is been built, but it's yet to be operational, and sort of the collective pro-life network in the area has stood against it, and it, it hasn't been able to move forward with its plans for the past couple of years. Um, I get the stats. I understand the propaganda. I constantly am exposing Planned Parenthood and their racist origins and their racist practices and so on. But And I myself have made those comparisons between genocide and the Holocaust and how they target minority groups and so on. But one, some of the kickback that I get that I really would like your advice on how to address is when people say, you know, it's not exactly like China where there's forced abortions and it isn't like Nazi Germany where they're loading people onto cattle cars and moving them off to death camps. You know, these, any, any woman who goes in there, um, and in this case, uh, an African-American mother who goes in there is complicit, is paying that abortionist's bill, is choosing to do this. So I sometimes think that I'm missing some piece of it. Is this a, you know, is there a way to address this culturally? Why has it become such an acceptable practice? Because we can say that Planned Parenthood does X number of abortions per year, and those abortions are disproportionate to the black community, but the black community is still entering into a partnership with Planned Parenthood. So how do we address that, that cultural aspect of it? Um, beyond just exposing what Planned Parenthood does and reaching out to individuals on a case-by-case basis. Okay, thank you for your call. Um, and I'm going to let you hang up and then I'll, I'll address that. So first of all, um, I hope that my comments don't make it appear as if I don't hold women accountable for making the decision. But we have found through investigations and pro-life organizations have documented this extensively that there are women in this country who have had abortions where they felt pressured as if they had no other choice. So while they may have paid or a family member paid, it wasn't their idea. It wasn't really that they wanted to have an abortion. It's that they were told, look, you have an abortion or we're kicking you out of the house or you, you have an abortion or, you know, I'm, people might find out that you and I have been having sex and I'm 50 and you're 12, you're 13. So if you're below the age of majority and you're being forced to have a, an abortion, that is forced abortion. And that is very Nazi-esque. Um, it's also child abuse and it's also sexual abuse. And those are crimes. Uh, as far as the comparison to genocide, the, the genocidal comparison is not in the forced activity of it, but in the numbers. When we see people marching and creating movements around three or 400 blacks who are shot by the police in the, some of them in the commission of a crime, others, the police are defending themselves, but in any case, they're black and they're killed by the police and there's less than a thousand of them and we see a protest, then why wouldn't we be even more concerned about a number like 20 million since the passage of Roe v. Wade or 900 a day, 40% of that number, you know, which is an everyday type number here in the U.S., even though we've seen a precipitous fall in the number of abortions that have occurred on a yearly basis from the high of 1.7 million back in the 90s to current numbers, which are under a million, about 958,000 abortions a year, uh, per the Guttmacher Institute's most recent data from, I believe it's 2015. Uh, so, you know, we, when, we, when we look at it that way, 
it's really, it's a conversation. I'm here on the radio and, and I've talked about this conversationally, relationally. I've given speeches about it, talked about my own history with it. It's, it's really about whether or not when you're speaking about this, you're offering options for women that women feel like they have the option to make a different decision. And what we find here, I know for here in St. Louis, I, I'm very much a supporter of Thrive. And what they found with women is when a woman is given another opportunity, when a woman who's abortion-minded encounters one of their wonderful buses, they have these huge fancy RVs that do all the things that Planned Parenthood doesn't. And when a woman goes inside and gets her STD testing, a mammogram, a bunch of other things that she needs, and then is also told, oh, you know, your pregnancy test is positive. Would you like to see an ultrasound? And then they're offered after the ultrasound, all you have to do is take some parenting classes and we'll provide you with your entire baby kit, you know, the the crib, the blankets, diapers, and we'll provide you with care for the remainder of your child's life. We'll be partnered with you um, if you decide that you want to go ahead and give parenthood a try. Women overwhelmingly choose to have their babies. So it's it's a complex issue and discussing it is tough. We have to come in, uh, you know, as gentle as doves, but we also have to be steely-minded and single-minded in our repudiation of Planned Parenthood, and they're seeking to be validated by the fact that they're taxpayer-funded. We have to be against that, and we have to stand against it, and so it's a complex issue that we can tackle, and we can do it, and, and we are doing it, and we have to find ways that we can do it even better than we're doing it, um, but it's, it, I agree with you. It's not a perfect apples to apples comparison, but numerically speaking, I'm not sure what else you can call the loss of 20 million Americans lawfully in this country, funded in part by taxpayer dollars other than a genocide. I, you know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to describe it in any other way. Um, so now I want to get to this outside the defensible perimeter. So this is a story by Karen McQuillan. She's a, a writer. She wrote about Five years ago, her husband and she made the decision to buy a house in the emptiest county in America. They went there because after visiting, they found the night sky is so dark that they could walk in the high desert by starlight and cast a shadow. So dark, you can see distant galaxies and the zodiacal light of them. So they wanted to live somewhere remote. They had three types of people that live in this rural area that they moved to, amateur astronomers, ranchers, and illegal aliens. So she said, it's not a secret that 60 miles between the border and Interstate 10 are treated as no man's land, where even though you live and vote and pay taxes in America, the government acts as if you're beyond the defensible perimeter of the country. Even though border patrol is everywhere, even after President Trump took office, they're just going through the circular motions of catch and release. So they have high tech listening stations in the mountains, trucks equipped with radar in the back roads. They know where the drugs move through. They know the regular drop-offs. They're adept at finding the caches of drugs. But if they can't secure the borders, they can't keep the families that live there in this area safe, and they don't even try. She says, we are the deplorables. All of her rancher neighbors have guns. Most are evangelicals. To Democrats and open border Republicans, we are the throwaway people, the other, disposable. She says she doesn't name names or even place names in this article because these are her neighbor's stories, that they're cowboys, farmers, ranching families. They're strong, resourceful, tough people, but they're wary and they're weary. They fear retribution by drug runners and coyotes who bring illegals across because they've seen it happen. 
she says, if you hear a knock on the door in the dark of night and you open the door because you're an evangelical Christian and the Bible says to care for strangers, they will sometimes find a young woman or a child who's you know dehydrated and about to pass out and they'll give them food and water and then send them on their way in the morning or call you know someone to come and pick them up. Or they open the door and it's a group of illegal aliens who rush in and beat the family to a pulp or force them to drive them and a cache of drugs to another location. These are things that happen to Americans on a regular basis. Some of the ranchers who live right on the border have finally admitted it's too dangerous and they sold their land and walked away from a lifetime of face-to-face relations with neighbors and family under the big sky because they petitioned their elected officials and they tried and they weren't able to get any help. They talked to reporters. They even met with presidential candidates who came down to campaign. Some care for real and some don't, but it doesn't matter if they care because they're not doing anything about it. She talks about President Trump and how popular he is there and how people believe him when, they, when he says he wants to do something about it. But they also admit that he's being blocked by the GOP elites who want open borders. She says whenever they get together, they hear stories about, did you hear about so-and-so? Their 80-something widow who always gives illegals food and water. But one time she opened the door at 3 a.m. They pushed into the house and tied her up and robbed her. She lives alone. Neighbors are also worried because one of the men who is crucial to their community, he's a well digger. He's the best well digger in their entire area. He was waylaid on a distant ranch digging a well, taken at gunpoint along with his truck. He was told, we'll kill your family if you ever speak about it. And they forced him to transport a load of drugs and then let him go. Some other neighbors noticed that they spotted an illegal crossing their ranch, but he wasn't a Mexican. They took his picture. It's a long, narrow-faced black man who looks Somalian crossing the southern border. Neighbors are worried because an older couple in an isolated ranch were in bed asleep when they heard men ransacking their kitchen for the third time. The wife was forced at gunpoint to take a pregnant woman to the hospital to deliver an anchor baby. Another neighbor came home from the grocery store and found an illegal immigrant wearing his clothes, holding his gun, who forced him into the house. Look, these are American stories, but we don't see any protesters. We don't see any liberals campaigning on this stuff because they brought it to be. When we get back, we'll have Mark Lauder. He's going to give us some more answers and details about this. Stay there. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a healthcare plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, You could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. 
Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star star 345. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. There's an occupational hazard associated with the nature of my ministry. God's called me to preach, and there's the risk of saying something that's not completely accurate. I've been guilty of this. I hear a story and use it, only to find out later that what I said didn't really line up with the facts. There have been a few times when I've had to correct what I said. It's easy to start really stringing together things that don't paint the accurate picture. It's easy to say, well, they knew what I meant. No, what is at stake is our character and integrity. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand. There are some wonderful practical steps here for us to take when we have misspoken. First of all, we need to fully embrace the fact that what we said wasn't accurate. Secondly, we have to humble ourselves and confess. We have to say, I have to straighten that out. It wasn't accurate. Whether we say it or write it, we need to have the courage to say, I didn't have the full picture on that, and some of the conclusions I came to weren't accurate. Number three, make it an urgent priority to straighten it out. The Bible says, do not give sleep to your eyes. Don't procrastinate. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Your words matter, whether you're a preacher or not. It's a matter of character and integrity issue. If you've misspoken, take counsel from Proverbs chapter 6 and make it right. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are moving on through, um, getting to our next guest, which we're so happy to have with us. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com and at StacyOnTheRight on Twitter and Instagram. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Mark Lauder, former press secretary to Mike Pence. Thank you for joining in today, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me, Stacy. So we've got this really volatile topic going on right now, which is a boon for the left and their hopes of uh, taking back the houses of Congress in the fall in 2018's midterms. And that is that they're able to effectively portray Republicans like myself and especially those in elected office and the Trump administration as horrible barbarians ripping babies out of the arms of innocent women who just happen to be a toe over the border into the United States. It's wrong on so many levels, yet we have now Laura Bush and others participating in this madness by making it seem as if we really are doing that when uh, Kirsten Nielsen has said we are not. And she's the uh, U.S. the DHS secretary. So she would know. No, you're absolutely right. And it should be noted, too, that Mrs. Bush's comments talk about the need for a strong border. And, and everyone is is upset by the fact that this step is being is, is having to be made the, the issue is is that we have a very porous border system we have immigration and asylum laws that 
many folks that are trying to come to this country are well aware of, and they know how to take advantage of it. And like the Secretary of Homeland Security said, if there is a family that is seeking asylum in our country, go to one of our ports of entry and make your asylum petition. It is not against the law to come to our country and legal and enter and request asylum. What is a problem is when you don't go into a point of entry and you illegally enter our country and then try to claim asylum after you've been caught. So is it true, uh, Mark, and I've been like, so there's so many facts to this and there's so much detail that is being left out of the CNN and MSNBC and Jimmy Kimmel, you know, rants. They just want viral video. They don't care anything for the facts. But is it true that if you enter in at one of our ports, then your asylum claim is treated as a lawful act? And if you enter in, just cross the southern border at the Rio Grande, then you've broken immigration law and your asylum claim is basically treated as an afterthought because they don't believe that you're seeking asylum because you're entering in illegally. That's absolutely correct. If you come in and you come into one of the ports of entry and you make that claim, it is dealt with in a lawful manner. If you illegally enter our country, then then it is an entirely different matter. And and the law and this is a very simple this is a very simple explanation. Is that if you get caught and you and you obviously are, are held, dealt with the illegal immigration part, if you agree to go back to your home of origin, you will be reunited with your families and sent back right away. What they don't do is that they then claim asylum. And the, and there are federal court rulings that say that we can only hold children of illegal immigrants for 20 days. And so we've got this issue that says we've got a criminal proceeding and an asylum claim. We can't hold them at the same time. And so the previous administration, and there was an Associated Press article just about a year and a half ago in January of 2016 that was critical of the former administration because what they did was they actually just kind of threw the book away and let many of these children out without verifying the backgrounds of the people that they were letting them, releasing them to in our country. And in fact, they were being put into trafficking situations, sweatshop situations where they were mistreated, malnourished. And so as the Secretary of Homeland Security said today, we cannot just assume that these family units that are coming across are actual family units. We need to be able to verify this information. And so the safest place for these children to be during this process is to be in the care and the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services until we can determine that there is an actual family relation they could be sent to here in this country or the people that brought them across illegally agree to go back to their country of origin. Now, I want to make that point crystal clear because I, th- I believe in the listening audience. I know I've seen in some of the chats on the live streams, people are really grappling with this. They want the facts so that they can adequately defend what's going on. Not, not that there's a defense of separating children from their families, but that this is not exactly accurate. That First of all, the entire meme or, or, or you know premise here that families are being ripped apart is not accurate because at any moment, a person who has crossed the border illegally can simply say, I admit I crossed the border illegally. Give me my child. And they, they will be actually paid for their return trip back to their home country. Is that correct? With their child. That is correct. <laughs> so if you bring six kids, if you bring a family of 14, if it's just you and one child, if you admit, hey, we crossed the border illegally, that's not the way to get asylum. Send us back home and we'll make the trip again, but we'll come to a border port. port 
they're allowed to leave, correct? Correct. Yes. So and, I want to make sure that's, that's so stressed. many examples. And it is well documented that, they, that those who are trying to subvert the laws of our country know that the law is different when it involves children. That's why they often bring their own or they get just get children in a trafficking situation and bring them up here in trying to subvert the laws of our country to be released into the into our country and, and again the, the policies of the past had been we'll give you a you know basically a parking ticket send you off into the middle of the country and hope that we can find you two years from now or you're willing to show up to court to get the actual decision on whether you can get asylum and stay here well we know that's not true and so that's why this administration is saying, no, there is zero tolerance. If you cross the border illegally, you are going to face prosecution. Now, the you people who you're, your country, well, <laughs> now, the people you're describing, Mark, let's let's take this a step further. We now know where all of these or I can't say all because there's a complex mix of ways that people can enter the country and become DACA recipients, let's say. But let's connect the dots here for for people who are really if you really want to fully understand what we've seen, how do we get 750,000 to 3.5 million people who were brought here illegally as children? People show up at the border illegally with someone they say is their child who really is or is not. Doesn't matter. They're given a order to appear two years later in court and they're allowed to take that person who's their child or is not into the interior of the country. They don't show up for the court date. They begin living outside of the law, within the United States, working, the child is attending American school, but when that child tries to get a driver's license or tries to apply to college after they've graduated from high school, they can't do so because they're in the country illegally. And that person then says, well, I'm an American. America's all I've ever known. And then we're stuck with the new problem, which is what to do with this kid. Meanwhile, the parent may or may not have been deported, may or may not have committed a crime, hit and run, killed a child, like is the case uh, most recently. In the news, there's a 14-year-old boy who was driven over by an illegal immigrant driving on the wrong side of the road who then tried to leave the country and go to Mexico and has been apprehended. That family has had their child ripped away from them. No protest there. So what we're doing if we continue the Obama administration policy is we're expanding the number of people who will need some kind of amnesty later through DACA. And and that's where the president is drawing the line. He is not going to kick the can down the road any longer, like presidents of both parties have done over the last 30-plus years. He wants Congress to come together with a sensible reform package that includes border security. So we have fewer people, fewer drugs, fewer gang members, with or without children, trying to sneak across our border and to pollute our neighborhoods. That would also force more people into the legal ports of entry where if you want to make a legal asylum claim, you are welcome to do so, and it will be heard. But we have to have a, we have to have a complete system and not just another Band-Aid approach that will create another DACA-like situation 10 years down the road. And that's where the president's showing real leadership, despite the fact that there is political pressure. He's standing up for doing what's right and the rule of law. I'm totally in favor of his approach here because he sees the handwriting on the wall in European nations that have had this haphazard, uh, you know, ill, ill-advised, unthought-out approach to letting people into the country. So let's talk about the two. There are two bills uh, that have been proposed. One is a more moderate bill that sounds like a train wreck, and the other one sounds as if it's at least somewhat workable. 
Um, at what is the president's plan? I, I thought I saw some tweets or something about him saying one of the bills he would never sign. Is one of them a viable option for the president to try to handle well, this problem? I think, I think that was a, a misstatement. The White House clarified that, that he was referring to, the, to a bill that was being worked on by a very small handful of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. But okay. There are two bills that are emanating from the House Republican caucus. One is a little bit more of a compromise bill. The other one is a little bit of, of, of a more straight down the right, uh, on the right side uh, of the political spectrum bill. And it's the indication that he would support either one that can get through the House of Representatives. And he's going to go to Congress tomorrow night to meet with House Republicans and stress the need to get this done. But let's also make very clear that in addition to a, a wall and border security and reforming the visa lottery and ending chain migration and, and dealing with the broad immigration problems we have, the president has also been very upfront in saying, I want to treat the DACA recipients in a fair and humane manner. So if we can do that and we can come up with a bill that will do it all, it may not make everybody happy. It might inflame a little bit on both sides. But if we can get that, usually, I've been in politics a long time, and I understand that if nobody's happy, you've probably got a pretty good piece of legislation. You know, Mark, I, I, I've, I've evolved quite a bit since my early days, uh, you know, attending Tea Party rallies and really being very fervent and wanting to see government drawn down. And I believe the president's doing an amazing job in actually reducing the size and scope of government uh, through reduction of regulations and drawing down employees, you know, not rehiring people when they when they uh, move out of the government. But there's also this issue with when we talk about the border. You're right. There's going to be some things that I find unpalatable. But if they get us true reform, as you just described, specifically the end of chain migration and the funding for the border wall. I'm almost willing, you know, the, we're, we're talking about the DACA recipients. I don't believe they deserve amnesty, but I'm willing to trade it for those other things. And I think the president is, too, which he, he would find a lot of support for that within the base of the Republican Party that elected him. Not the, and even if you go, the amnesty people, but uh, and even regular if you folks. go, Kim, with the what the president called for earlier, I think earlier this year, it wasn't just blanket amnesty. It was 10 to 12 years down the road. And that said, if you meet these certain criteria, you have a job, you've gotten an education, you've not been uh, in a criminal activity, that we can talk about having a path, a pathway to citizenship. It's not just a, a blanket there. So he's also putting on the very conservative principles that we've long stood for of, of all immigrants, legal and illegal, that if you come here, you do the right thing, you get an education, you join our community, you you get a job, you pay your taxes, you stay out of trouble, then let's talk. And those are the kinds of common sense reforms. And I know not everyone's going to love every aspect of it, but the one thing I would urge everyone that's listening today is to think that we've got to get back to a place in our country where 90% of what we want is still considered a win. And it doesn't mean that you have to give up that last 10%. You can still go out there and talk about it on the radio or write letters to the editor, go out there and, and march and, and, and have your voice heard. But let's not throw away the 90 because we can't get that last 10. I'm willing to take the 90. 90 is actually much higher than what <laughs> I would expect out of these Democrats. So if we, if, we got, if we get the end of chain migration and we get the, uh, the border wall funding, uh, I mean, we'd be light years ahead of where we've been. It would actually radically change what we're seeing uh, across the country. And I think it's a good start. Uh, Mark Lauder, former press secretary to Mike Pence, an expert on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Oh, thanks for having me. Look forward to coming back. All right. Talk to you again soon. Um, I want to go to the phones. We have a quick call, I believe. Let me see. Who do we have? Phil in New York. Hey, thanks for calling into the show. Howdy. Hello. I just wanted to make a statement and see what you think. I have ads up on Craigslist, newspapers, trying to hire American people to work in my small factory. Um, I get people who have opioid problems, mental problems. I have yet to get an American who really is willing to work, who has roots in the community, who are not uh, drug addicts or ex-cons or whatever. I cannot find employees. We need illegal, legal, whatever immigrants because they work and they work hard. I have yet to find Americans who are willing to work. That's all. All right. Thanks, Phil. Um, I'm not sure what part of New York he's in, but I guarantee you that there are Americans who want to work and are employable. The question is, um, you know, because there's, there's a little bit more to what, who want to work and are employable. Illegal immigrants are willing to work for less money. They're willing to work under the table. They're willing to work longer hours for less pay. It depends on what you're willing to pay and what kind of, uh, you know, environment you're offering for people to work in. Could we do a better job of training Americans and, and you know, improving our culture so that we have a, a workforce that is, is to be envied as we have had in the past? Absolutely. We certainly can. But the answer to our problems is not to bring people in here into the country illegally or to employ illegal immigrants. Um, you know, if, you, if we want a worker visa program, okay, let's get some legislation on that. But we need to legalize whatever solution we come up with. And I've heard that before. And, you know, my heart goes out to business owners who are having trouble finding employees. Um, it, it's, it's a multifaceted problem. So when we get back from the break, we're going to be listening to, we're going to pivot over to this fascinating interview by this, uh, his name's Jaron Lanier. He's a Silicon Valley computer philosopher. He's got something super interesting to say about Facebook. And um, it's interesting because while Facebook isn't as ubiquitous as we thought it was, especially with younger people, they prefer Snapchat and newer platforms. Facebook has uh, really achieved, you know, a singularity, if you will, among usefulness to the American populace. He has some interesting suggestions for how to handle that. So we'll listen to that. And we'll take your calls. The, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go to the phones. We have uh, 866-963-2037, where you can call in and talk. All right, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki Addison of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, he made family by creating Eve as his wife. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. Our speakers include Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Burt Harper and his wife Jan, and more. We'll even be there. 
The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, I'm Jerry. I always had to have the expensive clothes and sell the right drugs. But drugs and alcohol eventually broke me. So I came to Teen Challenge, and now I've been drug-free for 10 months. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. The church has to take the lead in ensuring that men are properly trained for fatherhood. We have an epidemic in which boys are not growing up with their fathers. So as Christian men, we have to stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that our communities are not destroyed. When we see fatherhood as a blessing and not an inconvenience, we will see children as spiritual weapons in our arsenal. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. <laughs> Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. American culture is in decline. Sexual perversion is accepted. Mass shootings strike fear into families. Television shows promote suicide as children's programming. Church attendance is down. Newspersons defend the violent gang activity of MS-13 under the guise of every human possessing a spark of divinity. That's garbage. The human heart is depraved and wicked and in need of redemption, which can only come through Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we learn that we are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves, but through God's gift of salvation. Instead of glorifying wickedness, we must start with ourselves. Are we obeying God's word, living and walking with him? Is the evidence of our salvation noticeable? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the answer to a culture in decline. Let's call on him. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey, welcome back to the show, everybody. 866-963-2037. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Monday. Hope your weekend was awesome. I spent a huge amount of time over the weekend gardening and trying to get back into almost anything that wasn't politics. I'm finding every weekend I have to unplug further and further in order to be able to survive because it's just the political discourse. It's coming so fast. It's like a fire hose every week. Uh, so it's been such a blessing to have some time off. And now it's a blessing to be back with you. Um, right now, I want to go to the phones and talk to Shirley in New York. Shirley, thanks for calling the show. Oh, turn your radio down. Hello? Hi. <laughs> Yes, I just have a quick statement. I don't want anything rushed through on the immigration bill. I don't want it now. I want it to wait till after the midterms when it lo- would look better for the Republicans. It would be a better thing to wait till then. I don't want anything rushed through now. Yeah, um, if I had my way, they would spend uh, months and months and months on a comprehensive immigration reform package. They would go over the current laws and regulations with a fine-tooth comb, and they would find everything that contradicts everything else, every 
loophole, everything that doesn't make sense, and they would simplify it down. The way he, the way Donald Trump has had the government cut nearly 22 regulations for every new one regulation, I would have them cut at least 25 immigration laws, individual little bits of legislation. They'd cut 25 for every new one. And it would be very simple and very easy to understand. Any person from any country would be able to translate it into their language, you know, even reading it into Google Translator, and they'd be able to say, okay, here's how this, there it is. There, whoop, that's how I can enter into the United States. If I enter in this way, I'm going to risk losing my family. If I enter in this way, I will prevent myself from ever entering the country legally again. And that's one of the reasons why one of the unintended consequences of our current law that says if you enter the country illegally, I think it's twice, then you can't apply to come into the country legally. You're basically barred from ever becoming a legal citizen if you enter the country illegally two times. I don't know that I see anything particularly wrong with that, but if you're aware of that and you're on your second illegal entry, then you have to say, no, I'm staying here for an asylum claim, even if you then realize your child is going to be taken away from you. This is the situation that is is born out of years and years and years of people tossing the law away to the side and not doing the right thing. I'd love to see that, but it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is the Republicans will bow to public pressure on this issue. The Democrats have found something. It's a weak spot, not weak for the Republicans per se, but it's a public relations weak spot. It looks horrible that they've been able to paint this narrative of parents being ripped away from their kids. So the president has a lot of backbone. He has a lot of steel, but he has something that he wants, and he's going to use this as the leverage to get what he wants before the midterm, because that would be another campaign promise answered. So I don't see them waiting until after the midterm to get this done. Um, so now I want to go to this audio of the Silicon Valley computer philosopher. His name is Jaron Lanier, and he's talking about the scheme of rewards and punishments that are present through um, Facebook and other social media. Now, I read a statistic this morning that out of every American, so four out of 10 Americans have actually quit some form of social media since the big Facebook scandal erupted. So since last year in the fall, when they first started having some concerns about privacy with Facebook, four in 10 Americans has found one social media avenue or another that they've quit. That's a pretty astounding number of people who are bowing out of this stuff. But the question is, what will the reactions be long term? It's number four. When you watch the television, the television isn't watching you. When you see the billboard, the billboard isn't seeing you. And vast numbers of people see the same thing on television and see the same billboard. When you use these new designs, social media, search, uh, YouTube, when you see these things, you're being observed constantly and algorithms are taking that information and changing what you see next. This is what I would call almost a stealthy addiction. It's, it's a statistical addiction. What it says is, we will get the broad population to use the services a lot. We'll get them hooked through a scheme of rewards and punishment. Uh, and the, 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 the rewards are when you're retweeted. The punishment is when you're treated badly by others online. And then within that, we'll very gradually start to, to leverage that to change them. So it's, it's, this, it's this very kind of stealthy manipulation of the population. So it's not as dramatic as a heroin addict or a gambling addict, but it is the same principle. It, it's made people jittery and cranky. 
It's made uh, teens especially depressed, which can be quite severe. But it's made our politics kind of unreal and strange, where we're not sure if elections are real anymore. Wow. So some of these results that he's talking about, the jitteriness, the um, the hair, hair tempers, the, the snappiness of the discourse, the way people just, you know, I, I've actually, I found myself doing it and I'm, I'm always surprised because I'm, I usually don't have that as a problem, you know, get having a instant anger, that type of stuff. Um, and, and just being overall really annoyed by things, um, not, not having a lot of patience with strangers, that type of stuff. And really kind of looking at people and you can see other people doing it too. They're sizing you up. And I think we now mentally categorize each other. We're just, oh, that looks like a Democrat to me. Oh, that looks like a Republican. You know, oh, and and you you got a hard road to go as a conservative if you're black because most people will assume you're a Democrat because most black people are Democrats. So it's an interesting, uh, like, new place that we've come to. So he then talks about what he sees as an answer to the problem. And I'm telling you, I my I, I was like, what did he just say? I had to listen to it twice, the, the end of the video. It's uh, the rest of his interview. It was really short. He was on actually Channel 4 uh, in Great Britain. It, it, the audio clip is number five. You threw in this, you know, it's making people depressed. But is there any actual evidence for that? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a vast amount of evidence. There have been dozens of studies at this point, um, including studies released by Facebook scientists. So this is, this is something we can call a consensus. And, and when Facebook releases such things, they say, oh, but we do all these good things, too, that balance it. But there's, there's a general acknowledgement that uh, depression correlates. Uh, the scariest uh, example is a correlation between rises in uh, teen suicide and the, and the rise in use of social media. But your advice tonight to everyone watching this is delete all your accounts. I would like to make two very quick pitches on that account. One, if you're a young person and you've only lived with social media, your first duty is to yourself. You have to know yourself. You should experience travel. You should experience challenge to yourself. You need to know yourself, and you can't know yourself without perspective. So at least give it six months without social media. I can't tell you what's right. You have to decide, but you can't until you know yourself. And then for the rest of society, I'd say, as long as we can have some small percentage of people who are off it, then the society can have voices to give perspective. If everybody's universally part of this thing, we cannot have perspective. We cannot have a real conversation. And you know what's interesting about that? Think about it for a second. If you're, if you're not a millennial, if you're older than a millennial, if you think back, didn't you always know a family, more than one family really, who they didn't watch television or maybe didn't even own one? I do know uh, just, I mean, very, very tiny number of people who are like that today, who don't own a television. Um, but now not only a television doesn't really mean anything because your smartphone is a TV, your laptop is a TV, you know, your computer is a TV, your iPad or your, your tablet is a TV. So it's not as, it's, it's almost like not as big of a deal if you say, oh, we don't own a TV. A lot of people don't own a TV now because they prefer to watch on their screens and the size of the screen is no longer an issue. I do think he makes an important point that if you're one of the younger ones and all you've ever known is having Facebook and being connected in that way, then you might be missing out on 
the freedom of not being connected in that way. I'm not going to make advice one way or the other about whether or not you should delete your account. I really feel like there's so many different ways that people approach social media and that for some people, just, just like there, I have, I, I know people who they enjoy brandy and scotch and they drink it with no problem. They're not any way near having a problem with, with controlling their intake or their consumption. They can drink it. They can go for months without drinking it and they can drink it again. I know other people who are teetotal by choice. They don't drink. It's not because they've had a drinking problem. They just choose not to drink alcohol. I know other people who it seems like I've never seen them in the evening without them having a drink in their hand. So the same way that people approach their food, you know, whether or not they eat meat, whether or not they eat pork, whether or not they eat shellfish, the same way people approach whether or not they're vegetarian or vegan or if they're uh, the, the kind of keto diet where you're all meat, you know, all the time. Um, it's a personal decision that reflects your tolerances and your controls. I just think the decision that you make, you, you have to be praying about it and, and really kind of looking at your consumption, not mindlessly consuming Facebook. And my answer for it was obviously I'm still on Facebook and for my work, I need to be, but I deleted the Facebook app off of my phone because of the issues with the privacy. And it really freed up a lot of time for me. Like I have my phone up to my face much less because I don't have the Facebook app. I'm still on Facebook, just not through the app. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see how my behavior has changed in light of that. And so the only thing that I would say for me that I feel like is an issue for all of us that are parents is trying to help our children through this and trying to help them kind of understand uh, how they can consume social media and use it to their benefit while still controlling it. And that's the big, the big deal. Because as he shared, as this, uh, Jaron Lanier, as he shared, it's, it, this is a group of kids who they've, they barely remember the time before they had it. You know, they, they barely remember not having Facebook and Twitter and et cetera, et cetera. And, and the other thing is, if you really look at Twitter, it's not appropriate for kids. Twitter to me is not the app that you say, you know, now that you're 16 or now that you're 13, you get a Twitter account. The Facebook account, at least you can kind of justify that uh, by saying, you know, often kids, teachers and instructors will have groups on there for the, the kids to engage with the other classmates or they'll put assignments in there. But I really feel like that's a misuse of Facebook. You have their email, you have them in your classroom, give them their homework and don't, don't tie it to Facebook. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just as many days as there are in the year or people there are in America, there are different ways of approaching this. And I encourage you to think about uh, how you can help guide your kids in this area. And I think it's, it's a blessing when parents and kids acknowledge, you know, this, this is not the devil. So social media is not the devil. It's not, it's not inherently bad, but it's not inherently good. And the use of it is what we make of it. So we choose the amount of time we spend on it, how we're going to use it, how much we're going to allow it to impact us. And as a person who I, I know, <laughs> know some people who are not only family members, but people in my close inner circle that don't use Facebook at all. I, I have a couple of people that I know that don't use any social media at all. And I did watch a TED talk by a guy who says he's never had any social media and how much more time he has to absorb information than those of us that do have it. 
And so as opposed to telling everybody, delete your accounts, because I think that's that's not wise. Just everybody saying no one should have it. I don't know that that's wise. But I do think there's room for us to explore how we use it and how we interact with it and then um, take it from there. So I want to give you a little more information. We'll circle back around to this immigration issue. And so when I said uh, DHS Secretary Nielsen had had quite a big day and she was on Twitter, actually, I want to share a little bit about what she said. She said, as referring to the misrepresentation and misreporting on separating children at the border, she says, this misreporting by members, press and advocacy groups must stop. It is irresponsible and dis- unpro- unproductive. As I've said many times before, Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, you are not breaking the law by seeking asylum at a port of entry. We do not have a policy of separating uh, families at the border, period. For those seeking asylum at ports of entry, we have continued the policy from previous administrations and will only separate if the child is in danger. There is no custodial relationship between family members or if the adult has broken the law. And Rich Lowry pointed out that separation happens only if officials find the adult is falsely claiming to be the child's parent, is a threat to the child, or that person is put into criminal proceedings. President Trump said children are being used by some. He has a duty and an obligation to stop that. So that's the show for today. Thanks for being with us. I will. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.